beloved, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, as we behold God's living word. So far in this book, we have covered quite a lot. In the first six chapters, the preacher kind of points to the places that man tries to find satisfaction under the sun, and where he looks for contentment, things like money and power, work, earthly wisdom, and laughter. It learns, and we kind of find out that there's really nothing under the sun that satisfies. That's his whole point. That's why he keeps saying that everything is vanity. Well, from chapter 7 forward, the preacher is actually starting to provide some counsel for us on how to live under the sun. So if the first six chapters are kind of a deconstruction, uh, chapter 7 on are more of a construction of how we are to live as God's people underneath the sun. Last couple of weeks, he's first taught us to discern that God's thinking is actually better than man's thinking, if you remember a few weeks ago, and that it's better to fear him than it is not to consider him. And that's really the train of thought that we will continue in today. And if we were to be honest, all of us would want to be faithful to live this life well. Uh, None of us would uh, raise our hand and say, I don't want to live this life with wisdom. Uh, but, but, But to live this life with wisdom requires a fear of God, an understanding of, of who God is. And, and this passage kind of pushes us at our very core to show us that our tendency is to want to control the outcomes of our lives. And what this passage is helping us see is that God is the one who is sovereign over all things in every situation. And therefore, it's best not to try to control the things that we want to in this life, but rather to trust God who is over all things. And if we can begin to fear him properly, we might be able to live this life in a manner of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the preacher continues to expound and clarify for us what wisdom is. And that is the fear of God. And we're going to give another swing at that today, trying to describe the fear of God. And he teaches the reader how to apply certain wisdom to life's situations. Uh, we go through situations all in our life, and we can apply our own wisdom to it, or we can apply the wisdom of God. And to apply the wisdom of God first means that we must fear God in every single circumstance that we find ourselves in. Uh, the main point of our passage today is very simple. Fearing God is the wisdom needed to rightly interpret and apply to life's situations. The fear of God is the wisdom needed to rightly interpret and apply to life's situations. Fearing the Lord, as we've learned, helps us in our worship. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And it also provides us clear lenses in which we are to see every single situation under the sun. We need, beloved, to arrive at the place where we realize that we do not have control. It's a hard step. But that first step of admitting and believing and recognizing that God is in control because of who God is really is the first step to applying biblical wisdom in this life. 
the preacher is providing us insights on how we should live. And the fear of God is, is kind of driving all of it today. And we're going to look at just three simple categories to see how the fear of God should be applied to life. First, we're going to look at authority and how we are to be obedient to the authority that God places over us. Then we're going to consider uh, God's judgments and how wisdom should be applied there. And then wisdom for interpreting life's providential situations, things that we don't understand and things that we don't agree with. And in dealing with these categories, the preacher is not only talking about wisdom generically, he's actually beginning to show us what wisdom is. So I hope today we walk away with an understanding of what wisdom is applied to the situations of our life. But before we can understand what wisdom is, the preacher there in verse 1 asks two questions that lead us into the topic of wisdom. Look with me there. He asks, who is wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? We see here that the wise are those who interpret, interpret a situation rightly, who interpret a thing rightly. It's, it's people who recognize truth in a situation and aren't persuaded away from the truth, no matter how enticing certain variables are to trust in. He's saying they're able to understand what's going on. And look at the repercussions in the second uh, part of verse 1, the repercussions of wisdom. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his heart is changed. It simply means this. The one who is wise has a gentle and peaceful countenance. You can tell that they are trusting in God no matter what the situation says. You can see it even on their face. Psalm 34, 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's that idea that the preacher is getting across to us today. The person that is trying to control things Uh, not recognizing his limitations, has a hard face. But the one who is trusting in God and resting in God has a gentle countenance, and his face is shining. In a sense, wisdom is trusting in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And that lifts our burdens from us. Oftentimes, we feel burdened in life because we've never allowed our souls to be lifted, trusting in the one who is holding all things together. It really requires a shifting of our eyes off of the circumstances of life and onto the God who is over the sun. Wisdom helps us to live when we are not in control. And we are to pray that God would allow us to have wisdom like Paul does in Ephesians 1. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, church, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes, check this out, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which you or he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So we want to set our eyes on God And in so doing, we will be wise in the circumstances of life. Look at that first category with me. There's three categories we'll be looking at. Wisdom 
to submit to God by submitting to authority. That's the first category we're going to be talking about. Look with me in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, in the context, he's referring here to Israel. Uh, The king's command that he wants the reader to listen and to obey what the king says. Now, let me first say, he's not saying that people should blindly follow the king wherever he needs to go or wants to go, nor is he suggesting that the king is always worth following in and of himself, as if he's completely and totally righteous. Here's the point. He's simply encouraging there in verse 2, to apply wisdom means to obey the command of the king. And that's what we want to do. And the reason why we want to do this, look with me, because of God's oath to him. God's oath and commitment to the king refers to God's placement of the king in his position as he serves as God's leader to his people. God has given him authority. We've seen in Proverbs uh, 21 that God turns the king's hearts like channels of water. So God is over the king, and if king gives a command, then we are to obey the king because God is over the king. And so we are trusting God when we obey the king. Now, actually, this is a broader thing than simply just the king. God wants us to trust and obey the circumstances that we're in all the time when there's authority over us, which is helpful for us because we don't have a king. We live in a democracy, but God is over every king, every leader, everywhere. Romans 13.1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted, check this out, by God. God has placed all authority everywhere, all over the world. And in Romans 13, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, who is actually under the leadership of Nero. And he's saying these words to them. So we are to consider the governing authorities everywhere. But you can really apply authority to every part of your life. God institutes your leaders or leaders in your works and places of employment and your families and everywhere. And, and, and we want to make sure that our hearts recognize the authority that God has placed above us. He's asking, how do you respond when one over you gives a command? That's a great question to ask your heart. How do you respond When one over you gives a command. Now, wisdom trusts that God appointed that person to leadership. And you want to obey, recognizing that God has placed this person over you. If you're a parent, I pray that you would encourage your children in obedience. Uh, Helping them to understand the, the good flourishing life that can happen when they listen to their parent. Uh, uh, those who don't learn to listen to their parent aren't going to listen to the authorities over them. There's a trickling effect to it. Now, does this mean that uh, uh, we're to do exactly what our leaders do every single time they tell us to do something? Of course not. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But again, the preacher is getting to the core of our hearts and asking us uh, 
How do we respond to authority when we're not in control? Uh, Be wise in your dealings with authority. Now, he tells us how to do that. Verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. It means that watch how you leave the presence of your leadership. Uh, Don't be huffing and puffing in disagreement. Uh, Subject yourself to the governing authorities. Don't be too quick to think that you know better than the authorities that are placed over you. We have a really helpful example in Christ when we consider this. Christ is king, he is savior, he is creator, and he's also an example for us. In John chapter 19, he is standing face to face with Pontius Pilate. And in that conversation, Pilate is the one that has authority over Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to him. You would have no authority over me except that which is given to you from above. And yet Christ in his glory submits himself to the earthly authority. Because he knows that he's being righteous in in doing so. We have so much to learn from Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 2 tells us that because Christ suffered for us, he left us an example so that we would do well to follow his footsteps, as, he, as we see in John chapter 19. He goes on, do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. This is the king. Verse 4, for the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? To take your stand in the evil cause is referring to the danger of opposing the will of the king. And he's warning this because it's revealing something about the heart. He's saying, don't stand with the rebellious. This is neither considering God's authority, nor is it good for you personally. Ultimately, that's what he's saying. Because the king is supreme, and no man is to say to him, what are you doing? He's, He's not talking about being led into evil. I just want to make sure that we understand that. But rather that evil is referring to the opposition of a king when a king is trying to do good for the sake of the people. So test your hearts. This is super important to see. Do we trust God? Do we recognize that that God is good and he's over things? This, This reveals to us where our faith and our fear of God is. Now, should we just blindly submit and do whatever the king says? No. In fact, the text tells us there's actually a place to disagree with authority. Look with me in verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Yes, when you obey the king, there is no evil done, and the wise know how to obey. But they also know how to object. They also see that there is a just way and a proper time on how to respond to a command from the king. And we see this, do we not, in the New Testament? We see that uh, Peter and John are preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 4. And the authorities arrest them. And Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. He goes on the next chapter. They're still preaching the gospel. And the authorities come to Peter and John. And Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. So, So there is a time 
when authorities leading into evil or doing something that is counter to God, that we can rise up. But he's getting here at our hearts. And it's a good question to kind of push down and and reflect on. We, We should desire to obey our authorities. It's an opportunity to trust God. We should want to display our trust in God. We would want to display our humility. We want to display our love for the world to see. So a couple of quick applications. Do you, do you recognize that authority is ordained by God? Ordained by the God of heaven. Do you honor authority? Do you consider authority? Are you angry towards authority or are you recognizing that God turns the king's hearts like channels of water? Do you pray for your leaders? Do you pray for those you didn't vote for? Do you trust that God is working through them to accomplish his perfect will? Questions. Ask your spouse. Uh, ask your friends this week how often you are considering the authority that God has placed over you. Some of us need to be commended by how we have honored authority that God has placed over us, particularly in government. Uh, perhaps you're still a, a good standing citizen who, in your heart, is not against the person that is serving over you. Some of us might need to be admonished. Some of us need to learn what it looks like to trust God more than trust the man or woman that we didn't vote for. Consider these things. I also want you to consider this, and this is stepping on your toes, and I'm happy to do that. How you respond to authority is a picture of how you respond to God's authority in your life. How you respond to authority is a picture of how you respond to God's authority in your life. Are you trusting him? Are you joyfully submitting knowing that God is in control? This is what the fear of God looks like. Because there is a warning in scripture from 2 Peter chapter 2 that I'm going to put before us here as we wrap up this, second, or this first point. God keeps the unrighteous under punishment until judgment especially those who despise authority. Great test of the heart to consider today. Now, he moves from being uh, controlled by the king and what that looks like to recognizing the limitations in all the areas of life in which there is authority over you. Look with me quickly in verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although men's troubles lie heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him what or how it will be? Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. All of man's troubles lay heavy on him, as it says there in verse 6. That's kind of the long, hard face, the face that's not trusting in God. He he doesn't know anything that will happen to him. Look at our limitations here. He doesn't know anything that will happen to him, nor can anyone tell him what's going to happen. 
You cannot retain the spirit. You have no power over death. You cannot shake a draft of war, nor can the wicked deliver themselves. All is completely and simply out of our control. And when man is over us, he has a tendency to hurt us. Beloved, we are to lift our eyes to God and to admit our limitations and to trust the one who has no limitations. And this is the fear of the Lord in regards to authority. Man cannot control. But the preacher does kind of move us into some hope because God will essentially and eventually judge Now, look with me as the second point, verses 10 through 13, that we need wisdom to consider God's judgment uh, of, of authorities over us and anyone around us that has any type of authority. As we see in verse 12 and 13, where this point is kind of stationed in, it goes well for those who fear God, and it does not go well for those who do not fear God. Look with me in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Uh, Solomon sees that a, a wicked person is being praised there in verse 10 at their funeral. Despite all the wicked actions of their life, could be talking about the leaders ahead of them or just the people around them in general. This isn't just normal wicked people. These are people who are going in and out of the holy place. These are the, the people of God. These are the unjust hypocrites that are found amongst the people of God. Now, to some extent, we all kind of understand this. We've never gone to a funeral where everybody's dirty laundry is just aired out there, right? We kind of get the best of everybody at the funeral. We, so we understand this to an extent, and I hope all of us have nice things said about us at our funerals, right? And nobody's like, don't be totally honest, right? But, but the point here that he's driving home is that there are those who lived with injustice on their mind and heart, and all they did, yet it was not referenced at the funeral, but in fact they were praised, And the danger of this is that it can give you the idea that you can live life doing whatever you want in all of your injustice, and nobody's going to remember it by the time your funeral comes around. That it's just going to be a praise fest for you. So there's there's a temptation to live out evil, and that's what he's getting at. Why don't I do whatever I want if there's no consequences in order to control my life? It's one way to say it. Well, the preacher responds to that in verse 12. Look with me there. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. The sinner, the wicked, might prolong his life for a time and all of his actions But ultimately, God will bring judgment on him. I'll get to that in just a second. But it does go well for those who fear God. You see there in verse 12. 
This, again, introduces the idea of the fear of God. And, and, and the fear of God and faith in God are sort of synonyms. And I think that might be helpful uh, for us to uh, remember. But it does not go well for those who do not fear God. Look with me in verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So he might prolong his life a little bit, but his days, his eternity is not prolonged. Beloved, to fear God, we really must learn just how deeply weak, vulnerable, sinful, as we talked about last week, we really are. That we are standing face to face with a holy God. We have an opportunity to trust in him or to do things in our own accord. Those who trust themselves, it does not go well for them on the day of judgment. But those who trust God, it will go well for them. What hope for us today in the middle of this text. We need to arrive at this reality. Uh, It requires us to rest in the goodness of God. The fear of God is also resting in his goodness, his love, his mercy. But it's also recognizing the terror of God against sin, against things that are unjust. And there is no turning to him. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, And in... Uh, the silver chair, uh, there is a scene between Jill, this little girl who just got to Narnia, and Aslan. And she doesn't know it's Aslan. In fact, the reader doesn't know it's Aslan yet. But she has just gotten to Narnia. She's very thirsty, and she comes upon a stream. And so I've just kind of cut out this little section of the story. Listen in and think about the fear of God. It's kind of a picture of the glories of God and and, and the terror of God. Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on the other side of the stream lay a lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I ran away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the, first became, the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could have a fresh drink of water. If you are thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink, and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and this voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, 
but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered the only, uh, this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. This delici- the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and kings, emperors, men, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it, had, if it was angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Aslan invited Jill to drink. She first refused because she thought she could get water elsewhere. But there was no other stream. And if she didn't drink, she was going to die. So she decides to trust the lion and accept his invitation. Those who attempt to drink from other streams come to realize there is no other stream. But the lion of Judah invites you to drink living water. And you will never thirst again, it says in John chapter 7. Christ is merciful and loving and forgiving for those who fear him and love him and who have trusted him. But if you do not fear Christ, it will not go well with you on the day of judgment. And this passage is a warning of that. Beloved, we must recognize that we don't deserve a drink from the stream. We don't deserve it. But he promises to let us drink from the stream. Though he is terrifying, he lets us come near and to to be in fellowship with him and to be guarded by him, to be loved by him, to be secured in him. All sin, beloved, is judged. What is incomprehensible and is continuing to be incomprehensible to me is that the Holy One, whose name is Jesus Christ, is actually judged for us. Sin is always dealt with. It's it's dealt with in your own life if you don't know God and don't fear God. But if you love and fear God, your sin is dealt with at the cross. It's it's an amazing story. It's amazing because it displays the character of God against sin as well. Think about this. During Jesus' betrayal, his unjust trial, his beatings, his crucifixion, uh, God never changed his mind against the judgment of sin. He, He kept moving forward with it. Pleased to crush the son so that whoever turns to the son, like it says in John 6, will be saved. Do you fear God? Do you love him? Do you trust him? 
God always punishes evil. And at the same time, he forgives sin. How does he do this? Well, it's the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is perfectly righteous, but willing to submit himself to God's judgment on his people's behalf. He died for those who turned, repented of their sin, trusted in him. He was buried and he conquered death because he raised three days later from the grave. And he holds the keys of death and Hades. If you do fear God, then you believe in his son. And you know that Christ has paid the penalty of your sin. And you know that his resurrection power actually saves you from the power of sin so that you can walk in this life trusting God, fearing God, preferring God over sin's delights. We can't see how judgment works in this life for the guilty. And we don't always see it rightly for those who are found in Christ. Have you ever been to a restaurant with a friend and you're talking to them and the sun is like piercing right behind their ear and you're like, I can't even see you. It's like blinding. Oftentimes the glare of this world doesn't allow us to see that judgment is coming and that it will go well for us It's walking by faith and not by sight, not trusting in the glare that we see. Beloved, I pray that we would fear God. I pray that every single soul in this room fears God and that is turned to Christ. And if you haven't, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. God leads us. And fearing God leads us into faith, into worship, into joy, into walking with him in wisdom. And this is the good news of our salvation. Now, the last point we'll look at just very quickly is verses 14 through 17. We also need wisdom to recognize God's providence with joy. Uh, Solomon, really from the end of chapter six, is teaching man that he is limited in his wisdom. But we must learn to trust God. I just wanna drive that home. We must trust a sovereign God that is over us. Look with me there in verse 14 as we get to seeing God's providence. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens to the, to, according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this is also vanity. Verse 15, and I, the preacher says, commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his, this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. We've all seen the wicked flourish. Have we not? We've all seen the righteous suffer. Has we not? Well, Solomon saw the same thing. And in our minds we think that the wicked should suffer and the righteous should flourish. And so when we get in this, uh, this debacle, we start thinking that that's unfair. And when we think about that as unfair, we start kind of being debilitated on how we're thinking about God. It kind of throws us off in how we're considering God in his sovereign work, no matter what 
is going on. It's just a reminder, though, that we don't have control. But to rest in the fact that we don't have control, and nobody does. And so the preacher commends joy. You can't control what you see. So I commend to you joy. That's the answer. For a man has nothing better under the sun, but guess what? But to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go uh, with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. He takes us all the way back to eating and drinking and work and finding joy in those things. He's like, you can't figure out what is going on in this world, so be thankful for the things that you have. This is probably the place in the book of Ecclesiastes he has driven this down the very deepest for our understanding. So wisdom teaches us that these gifts are really good. They're good gifts. Eating and drinking the few days that he has given us to live. And so when we fix our eyes on God and we learn to walk in wisdom and to fear him, we recognize he has given us these things. So it tastes sweet. It tastes different. Knowing that these provisions are given to us by the hand of God. It allows us to enjoy them knowing that our God is in heaven and he's providing for us all the things that we need for life and for godliness. We also learn that these matters, these things are not the end of the matter. These gifts are not where ultimate hope is found. Remember, the fear of God, it will go well with you. The things are going to come to an end one day when we dwell with God forever. But in the meantime, enjoy these things, for they are good. And verse 16 tells us where wisdom fits with joy. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. That means they never find rest because they're always looking. Then I saw that all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much man may toil in his seeking and he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Simply means this. You can search under the sun all you want by yourself, but you will never find out what God is doing. But you can trust what God has told you he's doing. And that's a different thing. We have to recognize that we aren't in control, but joy comes from recognizing that God is working and that he is moving. And this is good for us. Nobody knows all that God is doing around the world, much less what God is doing in your own life. And so we trust him. I'm sure there's a lot of people, I know some of you are suffering in this room today. You've gone through a lot already in 2023. It's good to recalibrate the mind. It's good to sit before God and to remember, hey, I know what I'm doing. I I love you. I'm working all things together for good, for those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. It recalibrates us. We don't need to go seeking for anything any longer. We can trust in him. Lorne and I do this a lot. We think often in the midst of our suffering and our struggle, what is God teaching us? And it always takes us back to who is God? Who is he? 
He is good. He is ferocious, but he's gracious and loving. Come near him and drink from his living waters. I love what Paul says. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Does anybody feel like their outer self is wasting away? Or our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Doesn't that sound unbelievable? Beyond all compare. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How do you walk in the fear of God? You trust in the things that you cannot see. For the things that are unseen are trans, or the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. This life tosses us to and fro. It doesn't make sense. We have to submit to authorities. We're treated unjustly. Uh, Things don't seem fair to us in providence. Yet, they always take us back to the one who is holding us. What hope for our hearts today. Lord, teach us to lift our eyes, to fear you. Beloved, our face will be soft. Our trust will be unwavering. Our hope will be renewed day by day. Just a few quick things to consider today in the final three minutes. One, man cannot find out the work of God, as the text tells us, by himself. Okay? He is unable to know what God is doing, but guess what? God has told us what he is doing. He cannot find it on his own if he's searching with his own wisdom, but God has given us the good news. It's called the gospel. And if we trust the gospel, we can begin to learn what it is that God is doing to make all things new. We need to remember the good news. And if if you're a non-Christian or a doubter in this room today, uh, my encouragement to you is to consider the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who has made a way for you to have your sins forgiven, but also to untangle all the injustice and the unfairness that you see in this world. Hold to Christ. He will come and he will set all things right. The second thing is this. We saw that these people at their funerals, they were going in and out of the holy place, but they were being unfaithful. Uh, but, but, but here, consider this. We can enter the holy place for good, for good Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living water that he opened for us, excuse me, living way, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for, who, uh, for he who promised is faithful. We can do this because he is faithful. We are not. But God is faithful and we can dwell in the holy, holy place all the time. We can approach God all the time because of Christ. The curtain has been torn because his flesh was torn for us. Beloved, let's live in that holy place, that healthy fear of God. Number three, It's good to obey the king's commands. Now, what I'm saying here is the Lord Jesus, the real king, the true king. 
the new Israel king. John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come, this, this is so good. And we will come to him and make our home with him. This is God who, who says, we, we keep God's word. He comes and he dwells with us in fellowship together. Well, what words has Jesus given us to, has he commanded us? Has he, he's told us to repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He, he tells us to, to, to take on his yoke because it's, it's easy and his burden is light. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. He says to love your enemies. He says to follow me. He says to walk the narrow road. And he says to believe in me. John 14, are you obeying the king's commands today? He has given them. It's a good question from the text and then applied to the cosmic king. And then finally, beloved, remember, it will go well with you. For those who fear God by trusting Christ. No matter your suffering, affliction, we need the same gospel every single day to remind us of the hope of Christ. God has given us wisdom. That, somebody greater than Solomon. Uh, it personified wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it is written, let no one boast, or let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is our hope today. Let's pray, church family. Father, we come before you and we recognize that to fear you is to know you. And it's to trust you. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom that we can apply to the situations of our life. Oh, I pray that we would dance with you and walk with you and trust you and drink living water that you offer to us. For any soul today that does not know you, Father, would you allow the Spirit of God to stir them, to help them to see that they are in desperate need of a Savior. God, work amongst us today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.